Our scripture reading this morning comes from the book of Ephesians 5, 22 through 33. Hear now the word of the Lord. Wives, submit to your husbands as to the Lord, because the husband is the head of the wife, as Christ is the head of the church. He is the savior of the body. Now as the church submits to Christ, so also wives are to submit to their husbands in everything. Husbands, love your wives just as Christ loved the church and gave himself for her, to make her holy, cleansing her with the washing of water by the word. He did this to present the church to himself in splendor, without spot or wrinkle or, or anything like that, but holy and blameless. In the same way, husbands are to love their wives as their own bodies. He who loves his wife loves himself, for no one ever hates his own flesh, but provides and cares for it, just as Christ does for the church. Since we are members of his body, for this reason, a man will leave his father and mother and be joined to his wife, and the two will become one flesh. This mystery is profound, but I am talking about Christ and the church. To sum up, each one of you is to love his wife as himself, and the wife is to respect her husband. This is the word of the Lord. Thank you, Christine. Do you know what the highest grossing movie of 2023 is? In fact, it's the 14th highest grossing movie of all time. It's made more money than Black Panther, Frozen, any of the Harry Potter movies, any of the Lord of the Rings movies. The answer is Barbie. Evidently, Barbie hit a nerve with millions of people across the globe, especially women. I don't know if you watched it. I did. I'm glad I did. Watching the movie helped me to appreciate better the struggles of being a woman in a male-dominated society. It helped me to appreciate just how unrealistic, if not impossible, some of the expectations there are on women. There's one particular monologue that especially resonated with me. America Ferreira, who plays Gloria, shares that women are expected to be thin, but not too thin. That women are supposed to love being a mom, but not talk about their kids all the time. Where you have to be pretty, but not so pretty that you tempt men and make other women jealous where you're supposed to be a boss, but not be bossy, where you're not supposed to get old, never be rude, show off, never show fear, and never fail. Her monologue ends with, quote, I'm just so tired of watching myself and every single other woman tie herself into knots so that people will like us. At the end of her monologue, I heard one of two things. I either heard sniffling from the tears or thunderous clapping. Evidently, her monologue helped many women feel seen. And so my takeaway from the movie is that being a woman in this world is exhausting. 
And some of you who are stay-at-home moms know what it's like to be criticized for being a stay-at-home mom as you hear the whispers, why are you wasting your degree? Some of you who work full-time hear the criticism that you work full-time. Don't you love your family? And still others who work part-time feel like you're failing at both. No matter what path you take, you can't satisfy everyone's expectations. And many of these crushing expectations stem from living in a male-dominated world. Now, whether you agree with that assertion or not, I think we can all agree that the words of Ephesians 5.22 is difficult for the modern ear to hear. Wives, submit to your husbands as to the Lord, because the husband is the head of the wife as Christ is the head of the church. At first blush, this seems to be another example of the chauvinistic, misogynistic worldview of the Bible. Clearly, the Bible was written by men for men as a way of preserving and perpetuating their power and dominance over women. Clearly, this is another example of patriarchalism gone bad. But before you immediately dismiss the Bible's teaching based on a knee-jerk reaction, I pray that you will hear me out as I try to show you what biblical marriage truly looks like. And I hope by the end of this sermon, you'll see that this passage is not something that Christians ought to be embarrassed by, but inspired by as we come to grips with the beauty of marriage. As we take a look at what Paul means here, I'm going to first address what biblical submission does not mean. I think few passages are more misunderstood than this one. And so before I can tell you and explain what it is, I need to first address what it is not. And I've got four misunderstandings uh, for you. Misunderstanding number one, the call for wives to submit to their husbands must mean that they are inferior both in value and competency to their husbands. It's demeaning and suggests that wives are less worthy, less valuable, less important than their husbands. In other words, it's the assertion that differing roles must mean differing values. The Bible, however, doesn't support such a conclusion. The best example is God himself. We believe in the doctrine of the Trinity. We believe uh, in one God in three persons, where God the Father, the Son, and the Spirit are equal in substance, power, and glory. At the same time, the Bible makes clear that each person of the Trinity has different roles. 
that God the Father ordains our salvation, Son accomplishes our salvation, the Spirit applies our salvation. What is more, when Jesus was here, he made it very clear that he lives in submission to the Father. He says in John 6, 38, for I have come down from heaven, not to do my own will, but the will of him who sent me. And yet, though Jesus lives in submission to the Father, we can all agree that he is not less valuable, not less important or worthy than the Father. Such a conclusion would be a Trinitarian heresy. And so, based on the model and example of the Trinity, we must not assume that different roles equals different values. That's misunderstanding number one. Misunderstanding number two, culture equals scripture. Sometimes when we think of the verse, why submit to your husbands, what comes to mind is the traditional marriage roles we saw in the 1950s and 60s. We think of the black and white I Love Lucy where the wife waits patiently at home to serve her husband, where husband and wife sleep in different beds even. I came across a 1950s home economics textbook, which prescribed the following. This is what women were tested on in the 1950s. Point number one, have dinner ready, plan ahead, even the night before, to have a delicious meal ready for your husband. This is a way of letting him know that you've been thinking about him and concerned about his needs. Most men are hungry when they come home, and so have dinner ready. Point number two, minimize all noise. At the time of his arrival, turn off the washer, dryer, dishwasher, vacuum. You've had plenty of time to do all these things during the day. Don't do them now. Encourage your children to be quiet. Be happy to see your husband. Greet him with a warm smile. Point number three is the best. Make the evening his. He is special. <laughs> Never complain that he doesn't take you out to dinner. Instead, try to understand his world of strain and pressure, his need to unwind and relax. Remember, you relaxed all day waiting for his return. Now it's his turn to enjoy what you enjoyed, said no one ever, right? Some of you hearing this probably threw up in your mouth. But we must not confuse culture with scripture. The Bible does not detail what biblical submission looks like. It does not detail what a wife is supposed to do, what a husband is supposed to do. Nowhere does scripture prescribe that a godly wife stays home, cleans, cooks, must not work, or if she does, must make less than her spouse. One of Paul's key ministry partners was a woman named Lydia, who was known for being a seller of purple goods. Another ministry partner, Phoebe was known to be a benefactor who supported gospel ministry in the early church. Even the Proverbs 31 woman, which, yes, is in the Old Testament, is praised more for her productivity and worth ethic outside the home than what she does inside the home. 
And so there is no cookie-cutter presentation of what a godly wife looks like in Scripture. For some marriages, having a wife stay at home is what is most God-glorifying. For other marriages, it might be the other way around. The ways in which a wife supports, complements, and completes her spouse is going to be unique in every household because last time I checked, every couple has unique gifts, experiences, affinities, and circumstances. And the last thing we want to do is impose what works for us upon others. And there's way too much shaming going on in the church. I was once at a church where a family left the church because the pastor's wife worked. Misunderstanding number three. Submission equals suppression. There's some who mistakenly believe that the call for wives to submit is a call to suppress who she is, to restrain her gifts, her intellect, her opinions, her perspectives, and become a shell of her former self. Where you have this blossoming young woman, and the moment she gets married, she disappears. This is somewhat related to misunderstanding number two, as some wives think they must suppress themselves in order to fulfill a culturally defined role. But such an understanding is not biblical. In a healthy biblical marriage, you do not become less than you are, but more of who you are. In verse 24, Paul gives an analogy of what submission looks like. He says, quote, Now as the church submits to Christ, so also wives are to submit to their husbands in everything. Let me ask you, how does the church submit to Christ? How does the church fulfill the mission and calling Jesus has placed upon her? Does Jesus say you must fulfill your mission by restraining your gifts, holding back your talents, and withholding who you are? No. As we read in Ephesians 4, the church submits to Jesus and fulfills its calling by unleashing and maximizing the myriad of gifts that are present in the body of Christ. Only when the entire body made up of individual parts are energized and leveraging their unique skills and talents and affinities for the glory of God, does the body of Christ grow into maturity to the measure of the stature of the fullness of Christ. It's an activated church that's a healthy church, a church that is utilizing who God has designed them to be. Jesus is not served when members mute their gifts and hold back their gifts. No, it is served when the body of Christ takes full advantage of their gifts. So too, marriage. Misunderstanding number four. Biblical submission promotes domineering and abusive households. This is 
the idea that the submissive wife is a wife who takes whatever abuse her husband gives, never complains, never stands up to it. Such a picture is a gross misunderstanding of biblical marriage. There's a reason why we started off last week by addressing what a godly husband looks like, what godly headship looks like. As much misunderstanding as there is about what it means to be a wife who submits, I think there's probably more misunderstanding of what it means for a husband to lead. Last week, we saw that a husband's calling is to love their wives as Christ loves the church. The command to love is all over the place in this passage. Why? Probably because Paul knew that husbands needed to hear this command more than the wives needed to hear the command to submit. And how does Jesus love the church? By suffering for her by carrying a cross for her, by doing whatever it takes to secure her well-being, even bearing the penalty of her sin in her place. Jesus puts the needs of the church before himself. He doesn't use the church to serve his own interests. No, he lays his life down for his bride. As such, a domineering, condescending, and abusive husband is a gross representation of the headship of Christ. It brings great dishonor to our Lord. As such, submitting to such behavior is not loving. If anything, it's enabling. True love holds a husband accountable. True love will reach out to the church. True love will contact the authorities. There are times where a wife may have to stand with Jesus against her husband for the husband's own good. And here's my plug that if you find yourself in such a situation, I do pray that you will reach out and get the help you need. So these are the four most common misunderstandings that I can think of of what it means for a wife to submit to her husband. Biblical submission does not mean you are inferior to your husband. It, does not, it must not be confused with culture. Submission does not equal suppression, and submission does not promote sinful behavior. And so having addressed what submission is not, let's talk about what it is. What does it mean for wives to submit to their husbands? I think knowing the purpose of marriage is helpful here. And Paul points us to the purpose in verse 31 as he points back to the first marriage. Verse 31, he says, For this reason a man will leave his father and mother and be joined to his wife, and the two will become one flesh. Paul takes us back to the garden and reminds us that the reason why God instituted marriage is so that the two might become one flesh, so that the two might become whole. 
The words of Genesis 2.18 are helpful here. What's remarkable is after creating the universe, God calls it good. But there's one aspect of his creation that wasn't totally good just yet. In Genesis 2.18, God says, It is not good for the man to be alone. I will make a helper corresponding to him. God notices that Adam needed a helper. He observes that on his own, Adam is unable to fulfill the calling God has placed upon mankind. And so he creates Eve. So I want you to know that the creation of Eve says more about Adam's weakness than it does Eve. God creates Eve because he knew that in order for mankind to fulfill the creation mandate, to procreate, to extend the boundaries of the kingdom of God to the ends of the earth, he cannot do it by himself. He needs a helper. He needed Eve. And so submission is the expression of love where a wife pours herself out, activating who she is into the completion of her husband. It's helping her husband become the man of God he was designed to be. And yet before you think that the wife is nothing more than an accessory to the husband, a Ken doll to the Barbie, before you think that the wife's sole purpose is to orbit around her husband, much like the moon orbits around the earth, let me remind you of what the husband's calling is. That as a head of the home, his calling is to sacrificially serve his bride and promote her well-being so that she might become the woman of God God has designed her to be. So that together as husband and wife, they can experience God's grace and expand his kingdom in ways they cannot on their own. And so a godly marriage, a deeply satisfying and fulfilling a marriage is one where a husband uses his headship to sacrificially serve his wife and a wife uses her gifts to complement her husband so that together they might bring glory to their husband, Lord Jesus Christ. Unfortunately, because of sin... Far too many marriages break down because they run on the fuel of selfishness. Where husband and wife are thinking, what have you done for me lately? But Christian marriage runs on another fuel. How can I serve you? What can I do for you Mutual satisfaction through mutual service. That's Christian marriage. Now I realize that as I describe for you what a biblical marriage looks like and what it doesn't, it may bring a measure of disappointment and discouragement. 
that as you see the, the, the picture of what godly marriage looks like, you can't help but think to yourself, we are so far from that. In 20 plus years of pastoral ministry, when it comes to the impact of the fall, when it comes to seeing just how ugly sin can be, I think marriage is one of those areas where we see sin at its ugliest. And so some of you right now may be leaning towards disappointment, disillusionment. You may be leaning on giving up. The disappointment of marriage is captured in the musical Hamilton. When Eliza first meets Alexander Hamilton, it's love at first sight. They're dancing, they're singing to one another, their hearts are pounding, their souls are soaring as their dreams of what life together can look like is unending. But by the end of the musical, Hamilton and Eliza are singing a completely different tune. Hamilton is begging for Eliza's forgiveness, begging her for forgiveness for abandoning her for his work, forgiveness for an affair, forgiveness even for the death of their son. And perhaps some of you here can identify with Eliza, and some of you with Hamilton. And when this happens, the temptation is to give up on love. The temptation is to conclude that there is no such thing as love. Perhaps some of you students who grew up in a very volatile home are thinking to yourself, when I grow up, I am not getting married. But C.S. Lewis wrote that just as hunger pains points you to the reality that there is such a thing as real food, just as your thirst points you to the reality that there is something like water that really exists, so too a broken heart and loneliness points us to the reality that true love really exists. The only problem is that the one who satisfies that deep yearning for love in our hearts, the one who can perfectly know everything about you and yet still love all of you, the one who satisfies our deepest longing to be alone and loved is not found in this world, even of the best of marriages. You see, it's not a coincidence that Jesus' first miracle happens where? At a wedding. A wedding where the wine runs out, and in that culture, who was responsible for the wine? It was the husband. 
And so you have a marriage headed towards disaster, a groom who doesn't fulfill his responsibility, but Jesus rescues it in his very first miracle. Why? Because he's communicating to the world, I am the groom you've been waiting for. It's not coincidence that when Strangers are asking Jesus, Jesus, why do your disciples not fast like the others that Jesus says in Matthew 9, 15, can the wedding guests be sad while the groom is with them? In other words, why should my disciples fast? I am here. It's time to celebrate. I am the better groom. It's not coincidence that the book of Revelation ends the way the Bible begins. It ends with a wedding. History comes full circle. But whereas the first wedding ends with bitterness and pointed fingers and shame, The last wedding ends with total jubilation and celebration as Revelation 21 verses 1 through 2 says, Then I saw a new heaven and a new earth, for the first heaven and the first earth had passed away and the sea was no more. I also saw the holy city, the new Jerusalem, coming down out of heaven from God, prepared like a bride adorned for her husband. Dear friends, whatever disappointment, bitterness, frustration, loneliness, whatever heartbreak, devastation, regret, betrayal you might feel this morning, all that will be completely swallowed up when Jesus comes again. He will come in glory And the church will be dressed radiantly as his bride. And on that day, we will experience what earthly marriage was designed to experience but falls short of. We will experience unfiltered, undiminished, unselfish love. We will experience soul-satisfying, heart pounding, soul-soaring love. This is why Jesus tells us that human, human marriage does not exist in heaven anymore. It's because the purpose of marriage has been fulfilled. Rebecca McLaughlin writes, just as Jesus, the sacrificial lamb, ends all sacrifices, so too The bridegroom of Christ ends all human romance. And this glorious picture the Bible paints for us reframes then how we look at singleness today. Our culture, our parents, especially in Eastern cultures, have a way of portraying and believing that marriage is the pinnacle of life. That if somehow you miss out on marriage, you are deeply impoverished. You are lacking. 
But in a Christian worldview, missing marriage while gaining Christ is not to be pitied. Last time I checked, when I see someone vacationing in Hawaii, they are not crying over not having a brochure of Hawaii. They do not miss the travel brochure. Why? Because they are in the real thing, experiencing the real thing. This glorious picture brings comfort to those of us who are experiencing imperfect marriages. It comforts us and serves as a balm as we see that our marriages, as important as they are, do not define us that there is something best yet to come. And this future of this glorious marriage inspires married couples as we see what true love looks like, not a tug-of-war of needs where one spouse is pulling the rope against the other, but where it's an anti-tug-of-war, where each spouse is looking at how they can serve one another Mutual fulfillment through mutual service. So I pray that as we look at what marriage looks like, it would help us to follow in the footsteps and the design God has laid out for us. And at the same time, it would also remind us of the future marriage that awaits all of us. Let's pray together. Lord, in this world of extreme individuality, where what is exalted is protecting yourself, serving yourself, being yourself, Lord, we understand that the call of marriage, of completing one another, of serving another, is just so radical and countercultural. And yet, O oh Lord, we see through the ministry of our Lord Jesus Christ that the pathway of becoming more of who we are is through service, not through entitlement, not through demands, but through loving one another. And I pray, Father, that you would help the married couples of this church to embody Christ-like sacrificial love and that you would uh, heal the many, many wounds that exist in this congregation and that you would comfort us with the hope and balm of the gospel so we thank you O lord for giving us a bit of direction in a very perplexing world and we pray this in jesus name amen